So I'd just like to begin this morning by welcoming those of you who've joined the retreat in the last day or two. It's lovely to have you with us and you probably already have a sense having I think arrived yesterday that uh, it's a reasonably quiet place at the moment here at Guy House and so just to acknowledge for those arriving that sometimes it can feel a little strange and even clunky one might feel a bit like a you know the proverbial bull in the china shop banging around the house while everyone else seems to be so deep in their practice and just to know that it's okay to arrive as you do and of course take care but nonetheless everyone who's here has gone through the same journey you're entering of arriving on a retreat and so to know that you're welcome and it's lovely to have you here, all of you. And for those of you who have the opportunity to receive new members of our community, not that we're formally receiving them, but just that they come into the space and to notice how that is. We may feel a sense of loss for those who've gone, a sense of delight for those who've arrived, a range of responses to their presence. And just to include all of that in your practice. One teacher I sat with uh, many years ago, a Burmese teacher, Sada Ujanika, in his main retreat center, <coughs> it was just an open space, larger, a lot larger than this. People did walking, sorry, sitting at the front, walking at the back. People arrived on retreat when they arrived. They left when they left. And everyone found it rather fruitful, it seemed to me. So, with that, <coughs> excuse me, I think I can hear that the speaker's working, but I want to check that it's working fine for everyone. Yeah? Great. What I'd like to speak about this morning is really a, a core theme of the Buddha's teachings. It could be summarized in relationship to the understanding of the process of what's generally described as attachment within the, the Buddha's teaching, clinging, upadana is the, the Pali word. And what the Buddha talked about in terms of the four great attachments which is kind of like, oh, that sounds good, the four great attachments, you know. What, of course, the Buddha was talking about was the four areas in which we get really entangled, attached, and bound. And the Buddha's teaching, although there are many ways it could be summarized or simplified or condensed, one formulation is simply understanding that the the dukkha, the difficult, the, that which is most hard to bear in our lives arises in relationship to a process of becoming attached. And the Buddha's recognition of this was the foundation for his understanding and teaching and the possibility of release from that bondage, that dukkha, that suffering, that entanglement and limitation. And so 
this is a topic that should be of interest to Dharma practitioners and one I'm sure you'll have heard spoken of before. Understanding that clinging, that holding on, which takes the form of both holding something to us or getting fixed in a position of resisting and holding something away from us, both forms of clinging or upadana, attachment, that these are in a way as responses something that invite us to let go. When we see, to let go of what we hold, to let be what we resist. And when we enter into meditation practice, it's perhaps it becomes apparent to us what a strong and deeply conditioned position we bring with us, most of us, that happiness and satisfaction will arise from some form of materialism. And this is a socially promoted and sanctioned view. And we might say, oh, no, 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 I'm pretty clear about that. I mean, why would I be here on a meditation retreat if I thought getting more stuff was going to make me happy? Because it's one thing that isn't going to happen. You're not going to get a lot more stuff here. I mean, there's some nice toothpaste, but um, we probably understand that that's not on offer here. And yet that level, in a way, the most um, superficial expression of materialism is the getting of possessions. But it equally extends to the wish to have experiences and to become someone is equally a movement of materialism, a a seeking to attain, to gather, to collect, to keep and to hold on to something which we believe will give us what it is we're looking for. And so in, in meditation, we're probably not so much going to catch ourselves looking for material possessions or trying to get more of them, but we may notice ourselves and it would, we would be in very good company, I have to say. So no need for judgment or criticism here. We'd be in very good company to find ourselves wanting to have experiences and thinking if I can just get this experience or return to that experience or attain this new experience, that will be the fulfillment, the satisfaction, the meaningfulness, the completion of what I'm looking for. Jack Cornfield, one of the elders and sort of uh, well-known teachers of our tradition, um, he once observed, he said, you know, people come to retreats thinking this is like going to the store or the shop or the supermarket, you know, and it's not. This is like coming to the dump where we go to get rid of the stuff we don't need anymore. To let go, essentially. And so, when we talk about attachment as something that leads to suffering, and that's the simple formulation we'll hear, craving leads to clinging or attachment, and this is the basis of suffering in the Buddha's teachings. We need, and it's really important, that we distinguish the psychological term, meaning attachment as a connection and a bonding with particularly um, the sort of the the person who provides the primary care and love in our early period after birth, which 
will often be the mother, but could equally be and sometimes as some other person. So it's often talked about the attachment with the mother or the mothering person, the person who offers that. And this is something that is actually really important for healthy human development. And attachment used in this form and the, the problems when it doesn't happen in a full and healthy way are not what the Buddha is saying, oh, you should abandon attachment. The Buddha is not saying babies should not make a connection with their mum or their parent. And that's really important for us to understand because sometimes we think and we might misinterpret this teaching as attachment or the dangers of attachment suggest, oh, let's not get close, let's not connect, let's not build or sustain intimate relationship of trust and love. And that is not what the teaching suggests. But it's an easy misunderstanding to make and it's one that sometimes even seems to be promoted in the name of the Dharma. What we're talking about when we talk about attachment in this context is the unskillful and harmful process of placing pressure on or making demands of our experience, our world, ourself to conform to what we want or what we prefer or what we believe should be. Pressure on ourself, pressure on our experience, pressure on the world, which includes other people, of course. And that pressure is actually deeply distressing both to the place or person that is directed. If we put pressure on another, it's distressing to them. But it's also distressing to ourselves. If we put pressure on another, if we put pressure on ourselves, it's doubly stressful, painful and unhelpful. So it's useful to unpack the word that got translated as attachment. First of all, to distinguish it from the psychological term. But the word is upadana. And I'm not a Pali scholar or anything remotely resembling one, but I have good friends and colleagues who are. And one of my friends, um, a Kinchino, a, uh, a, uh, a German, a Swiss German uh, Dharma teacher who lives now in, um, in Germany, he, he once very beautifully unpacked this word for me and for the people we were teaching. And he said, uh, Upadana. Up is an intensifier. Dana, you've probably heard that one before. Generosity. A dana is a negator, so it's not dana. Upadana is intensified, not generousness. Bit clumsy, let's use attachment. But if we listen to it from that perspective, we ah. Generosity has two primary expressions. One is the willing and the willingness and the capacity to offer, to share what we have. But there's equally a sense of generosity expressed in the willingness to receive what comes to us. It's a generosity. Like if someone comes or if we go to someone and they receive us as we are without demanding us to be different, we feel that as a gift. It's It's a gift. It's one of the most precious things we can give another person is to receive them openly as they are. So in this sense, generosity and the, the fundamental nature of what that is has an element of both giving and receiving in it. Or we could say giving and an openness. That's part of the 
the quality of it. And in this way, so far as upadana is an intensified non-generosity or non-openness, a very strong expression of that, what opens it or transforms it is both understanding that it doesn't work, as in it doesn't bring happiness in the way that it suggests to us or that we've come to believe it might, And from that, then seeking to cultivate the capacity to receive what comes and to let go of what leaves. To transform the habit, the compulsion, the pattern of what we call attachment, of fixing ourselves into a rigid position of demand for one thing or resistance to another. And it's, so there's the initial movement of craving for or aversion to. And then it solidifies into attachment where we actually make a position of this. And we invest in it. So we can see from this point of view that meditation can be understood as simply the practice of letting go. It's something we've probably heard in the context of Dharma teaching before. One of the places where it's really interesting to contemplate this is letting go in relationship to thinking. It doesn't mean we stop our mind's activity. There is an operation you can have which will do that. No one is here for a spiritual lobotomy. I'm sure that's the case. And yet this really interesting thing happens whereby we come into meditation and somehow we're thinking had been the solution to our problems before we actually paid attention to our mind. As we start to pay attention to our mind, we, it's almost as if thinking becomes now the cause of our problem. And it ultimately is neither the problem nor the solution. But we do need to understand it. We need to understand that investing in intellectual and mental processes as a, as a source of the solution to suffering doesn't work. Although, of course, our capacity to understand, to contemplate, to reflect is so helpful, so useful. <coughs> and we couldn't be having... This is a meaningful interaction, me speaking and hopefully you listening and hopefully understanding some of it without that thinking capacity and the Buddha's teachings likewise. Thinking is ultimately not the problem or the solution but particularly as we enter into a period of retreat and sometimes when We've been here a while and we think we should be past that. For periods of time, it can emerge with a degree of remarkable enthusiasm. And it's again really important to understand that that's part of what happens as we go through the layers of deepening and holding and contraction that we inevitably begin to penetrate as the, the quality of presence, of mindfulness, of 
wakefulness starts to gather some sort of gravitas, some weightiness, and it, it takes us into places within our hearts, minds, bodies, and process that will trigger or will release or will reveal any number of ripples that may show themselves in emotional and conceptual, as in thinking, processes. And that's the nature of it. So I want to speak, having just touched a little there on a lot more could be said, of course, about attachment, upadana. But I'd like to talk about what the Buddha spoke of as the the four great attachments. And you've probably all heard the joke about the Buddha and the vacuum cleaner sailor, uh, salesperson. I don't quite remember how it goes now. But um, jokes are made about attachment in relationship to this. And the sense of, actually, it's good to hold things lightly. Yeah, the Buddha was into non-attachment. It seems. But this is actually fundamental territory. And it's not something that's just, oh, you look at this at the beginning and then you go on to the, the subtle stuff. This runs through the whole of the way we experience practice. And that's the first of, of you know, attachment to sense pleasure. How hungry we are for something to satisfy me or our mind. And it's interesting just to observe. And again, some humor is, is useful here, I think. You know, it's only on retreat that I've ever read the labels on a tea bag. And, and to see, oh, when I'm doing it, or if I catch myself, it's like, oh, wow, I'm really looking for something here, aren't I? And however many tea bag labels I have read, I've never found it there, but that doesn't stop me trying again at some point in the future. And it's like, huh, what's that? Often it's like we have some subtle sense that something is lacking or missing, that there's something else or something better that we could be engaged with here. Whether it's a better meditative experience or a better flavor of herbal tea. And it's like we kind of lean into that possibility and we get pushed forward in time. Looking for something to fulfill, to soothe, to satisfy, to complete us or our experience. And it's something to be seen, to be noticed, not to reject or to judge, but you know how much. I think I spoke about this maybe at the beginning of and uh, in the, in the, the talk I gave at the beginning of the retreat about how preoccupied we are with getting comfortable, getting the pleasant sensations in our body and avoiding the unpleasant ones. You know, posture, temperature, food, sounds, how our companions might look at us or not look at us, contact with loved ones or absence of contact with loved ones. All of these things can touch us with quite strong, either pleasurable and desirable or unpleasant and painful sensory experience. And to really just be aware when we're trying to make it a mixture of this different than is presented. It's of course fine and lovely to delight in what is beautiful. We might find ourselves moved to want to stand and just look at one of the trees, as some of you have mentioned in conversations, and or, or, or just the, the the sky above Dartmoor, we can see from the uh, 
northern edge of the ground and that these sort of things and to really allow oneself to be touched by that but noticing if there's a kind of sense of oh I want to do this all day or, or if I could only keep this experience then somehow this bright open heart I'm experiencing would become my possession we don't quite say that but that's sort of what we mean or what we think or imply often and it's like, no, no, just receive it when it comes. And when it changes, disappears, it goes, let it go. As William Blake wrote. And I'll just adjust the, uh, the languaging slightly for a, a different world than Blake lived in, but... They who bind themselves to a joy do the winged life destroy. They who kiss the joy as it flies live on in eternity's sunrise. And so, in a few words, in a certain way, Blake summed up the whole of the Buddha's teachings in this territory. And somewhat more beautifully than I'm going to manage to do, but when we bind ourselves, when we attach ourselves to what gives us joy, we destroy the winged, the winged life. I don't know if you pronounce it winged or winged, but winged somehow seems right. Because in that very binding ourselves to it, something that's alive, that has flight, that has freedom, is is in, a, in essence no longer allowed to express that quality that we love in it. Because what we love is its aliveness, its unboundness. And if we bind ourselves to it, we bind it. And it loses, ultimately, what we wish for or sought in it. They who kiss the joy as it flies. To make intimate contact with what is beautiful or delightful. live on in eternity sunrise and here Blake is pointing to the dawn of the timeless he sees very clearly what is possible when we do not take hold of but nor hold ourselves back from the intimate contact with experience So the second great attachment the Buddha spoke of is attachment to rites and rituals or practices and precepts where it's sometimes translated. And it's interesting because I think many of us in a Western European kind of context would look at that and go, oh yeah, I can see why that might be a problem. You know, some of those traditional cultures or other places, they do all these strange things that they, they look like they might be attached to. And I've probably had such thoughts myself in my early years of practice. In fact, I know I have, so let's own it fully. And maybe you've had such thoughts too. But it was quite a journey for me that I found really important to start to see and realize how, in fact, I and we inevitably construct rites and rituals or practices and precepts in the way the Buddha's talking about them and get attached to them. 
Because what the Buddha is pointing to here is the, the idea, often unexamined, that somehow something or some form, if I fulfill it or participate in it, is going to do it for me or for us. If I go through the form as prescribed, correctly, fully, completely, ongoingly, hard enough for long enough, that's going to do it. And we might, as I said, laugh at someone who... We might not. We might have a deep sensibility for someone who feels that lighting a candle to their, to their deity will actually bring them um, spiritual fruit, fruition of their journey. We, some, some of us may have a real sense of the, the, the wisdom and truth in that. And for others it might be like completely no. And certainly that latter was where I was for many years in my sort of the early, early times of practice. And the sense of something can do it for me. Someone is going to do it for me. It's such a strong thing in us how we do this. And there's this, you know, great story of the uh, the uh, the guru whose uh, community would come and practice every day in the morning for several hours, really intensively. And at some point, a cat came along and made its home in the centre and um, would walk amongst all the. Uh, practitioners as they were as they were meditating and some of them found themselves distracted or irritated or annoyed by this so every time they would um, go to practice someone would find the cat and they would lock it up in the room beside the meditation hall and it went on like this for quite some time and it after some years sadly the guru died and another teacher was sort of emerged from within the community and then some years later the cat died and they got another cat so they could lock it up every time when they did their meditation. Having somehow concluded this was an important part of what they were doing. And it's good to chuckle about it because we do exactly the same thing. We somehow imagine that 45 minutes cross-legged following my breath, it somehow becomes a ritual performance. And if I... If I stand up or straighten my leg, well, I've spoiled it, I've ruined it. That one's not going to do it for me. This won't be happening here, but I have been surprised to notice when I teach a retreat, and I don't do this anymore, if I always sit with my hands on my knees over the days, just because, not me personally, but because of the role that's being inhabited by whoever's sitting here, archetype of a spiritual teacher is powerful. If I put my hands on my knees within not very long, as in a day or two, more and more people, and eventually most people sit with their hands on their knees. And I have said nothing about the need to put your hands on your knee. If I put the hands in my lap and I sit like this all the time, that's where people's hands end up. I've watched it happen. So mostly I try and alternate. And occasionally I wave them around. And occasionally I bring attention to this fact to see, oh, look what we're doing. Have some of us concluded, not you necessarily, that doing like this is the way it should be done? And that if I do it this way, that's going to help. It's fine if it works to put them there. I like them there sometimes, and I like them here sometimes. But I am hopefully not kidding myself that having it here or there is the most important thing or the thing that is going to do it for me. You know, I've been amongst a bunch of meditators who when someone arrives and walked too quickly around the ground while they were doing their slow walking, 
were obviously scandalized by someone walking fast, too fast. It's like, what have we done? Have we made a ritual out of walking slowly? That you must do it slowly? Sometimes it's really helpful to move more quickly. And I did a, I practiced with a teacher in Asia once where walking meditation was not allowed. And in fact, at one point where I was walking a little bit too slowly, someone came and tapped me on the shoulder and just wanted to check that I wasn't covertly doing walking meditation. I just wasn't in a hurry. And maybe I was paying attention to my feet because I was being mindful. But I wasn't trying to do walking meditation. And it, again, it's like, oh, look how we do this as human beings. And so what this is pointing to is the way in which we somehow, and this also can look like, a mis, like an expression of the teaching, but it is a misunderstanding, we give away to the form the transformative element. It's in the form, sitting and walking or standing, sitting and walking or standing, sitting, walking and lying silently in this way or that way or however we do that. And of course when we understand the teaching we realize I'm not going to do this. It's true. We, in the sense of self and the psychological construct and the whole egoic urge isn't going to be the author or the producer of the outcome. So there's a kind of letting go into the form, absolutely. But at the same time, we need to stay alive and engaged to the fact that what is possible arises out of our fullness of being in the moment of practice with a sense of possibility. But without taking hold in ourself of I'm going to do it, but equally not giving it away or putting it that out there is going to do it. When I was first in India, um, part of why I went to India was to uh, to meet my grandmother, um, who's who's Indian, and uh, I'd actually hadn't planned it this way, but I'd actually done a meditation retreat by the time I got to where she was, from where I started, and um, in India. And uh, <coughs> when I saw her, you know, I was, it was all new. I didn't really have much of a clue about meditation yet, except that it was amazingly engaging for me um, and her response when I said I was doing meditation was rather lovely this sort of little old 70 year old Bengali woman um, who I met and seemed to think well she was my grandmother it was like wow um, and she said yeah I do meditation too she says my guru he puts his hand on my forehead and we go places and it was like wow that sounds good you know, I, I sit around my knees hurt, I can't keep my breath in mind for very long and I go nowhere, you know. Um, now, again, I'm not the way in which in some traditions there's that sort of transmission that can happen or that sharing of experience, which I would call transmission, has a place and it's actually a powerful thing used skillfully, consciously. And there's a, a balance. So there's that sense of, yes, we can draw on the power of the, the field of this community of practice, of the teachings and of what's here. And that can carry us in a certain way. But this interesting balance between 
I'm not doing it, but nor is it being done without me. As another of my teachers used to say, you know, you're not going to do it yourself, but you've got to be present to win. That old sort of, uh, it's a phrase from the fairground, isn't it? When they do a, a raffle or a lottery, you've got to be standing there when they draw your number. And it's a kind of interesting interesting thing again. It's like, oh, how do I sit there? Where do I locate my sense of engagement in that circumstance? Somewhere between a mechanical, I'm just doing it, or a, a kind of, I'm making it happen. And so if we like to light candles, there's no, or, or, or bow to some flowers, it's again, there's nothing in the Buddha's teaching saying, do not engage with rites and rituals. The understanding here is, if we become attached to them, they will bind us, and they're very attractive things to get attached to, because in the spiritual context, rites and rituals present, or are presented and perceived as, this is what will do it for you. And there was a significant amount of that in the culture in India at the time that the Buddha was alive, and therefore that was part of what he was responding to. But it was equally about this tendency in our mind to want that, that something or someone else will do it for me. And it's a very understandable, kind of young place, which as an infant, of course, we need someone else to do pretty much everything for us, apart from, you know, poop and pee, everything else is done for us when we're really little. Has to be. So when we meet these places, it's important to be kindly as well as courageous in our resolute commitment to relinquishing the entanglement, the hold that such attachment may have in our hearts and minds. third <coughs> of the great attachments is the attachment to views and opinions to beliefs and ideas and the Buddha speaks of this as a, as a fetter or a th which sort of binds one or a thicket which one cannot penetrate into in a sense of sort of very densely packed vegetation that you're trying to get through and it kind of scratches you and you can't get very far I, I once uh, made the foolish decision while uh, tracking or tramping as we call it in New Zealand to try and follow a stream out rather than take the track which looked like it was about three times the distance and uh, I spent a long time by the side of the stream pushing through really dense um, bush and thinking hmm should have taken the track um, it didn't actually turn out to be a quicker way home or back to where I was going um, and so that sense of views and opinions is something that we, we struggle to push our way through. We get entangled and bound by. And again, it doesn't mean that we don't have any views or opinions. Of course, we need to have... And Buddha has a whole, um, whole path, you know, path element of the, the Eightfold Path is right view or, or appropriate, skillful view. But attachment to views and opinions... 
And part of how we see this, I think for many of us, it's very common. I certainly find it painfully and embarrassingly familiar at times for myself how much I want to be right. And actually, it's not even that I want to be right. How much it is that I know and believe and know that I am right, despite the fact that someone else has a rather different view of it, and there may be a chance that they're right. But it seems unlikely to me from my first response. It's like, nah. If we look and if we feel into that, we say, oh, I get a lot of security and safety from being right. As a kid, that was a refuge for me. I was a bit of a sort of a, a different kid in lots of ways. And I found safety and information and knowledge and being right. And we all do in lots of ways, not just from that kind of context. But because knowing how things are gives us a sense of capacity to control experience and therefore to protect ourselves from what we don't want to experience and to avail ourselves of what we do. If I know what's true and what's right, I'm going to be better able to get what I want, to avoid what I don't want. So there's a sense of security, a sense of power that comes from the certainty, which, and it's, it's the certainties that are the attachment. Attachment with views and opinions shows itself as certainty, and certainty is different than faith and confidence. It has a contraction, a tightness about it, and... Um, It's something to look at and see what goes on here. Voltaire observed once, he said, you know, uncertainty is indeed, and doubt is indeed an uncomfortable experience. But certainty? Certainty is ridiculous. There is so much that we cannot conceptually pin down, nail down. And uh, the very first book I ever read on the Buddha's teachings was uh, something I found in India when I was uh, going in, in, in Calcutta, where my grandmother was. It was by a, uh, an initially German Sri Lankan Buddhist monk. So he was German, but he was a Buddhist monk in Sri Lanka, Nyanaponika Mahathara, which is a great elder by the time this book was published. And it said in the heart of Buddhist meditation, the book, it's still a, a great book though, some aspects dated, but not many um, from the 60s. He, he said, and it really struck me, true wisdom is always young and always near to the grasp of the open mind which has painfully reached its heights and earned its right to hear it. True wisdom is always young. There's a freshness, there's a newness. The knowledge that we know, that we believe, even if it may be true, at a certain point it dies when we attach to it and it stops becoming lived knowledge because we stop referencing it to our experience and we start referencing it to our memory of how it applied and what it meant rather than asking, does it apply? What does it mean here? And so that sense of an open mind that has painfully earned reached its heights is the process of starting to recognize where we are attached to views and starting to open up to the possibility 
that we maybe should not or could not so much should but could begin to relinquish those positions seeing how much suffering how much pain how many you know wars have been fought over differences and are fought over differences of religious view because religion or spirituality is the thing that for many is what is most important and the view over it becomes so important or the view about it becomes so important and then the attachment with that leads to fundamentalism fanaticism conflict violence and at times some of the most incredibly horrible human tragedies in terms of what has played out from that so again one needs to be really like oh this is something I want to take care of in my own heart and mind and as we practice to notice where these might emerge for us and it's not just that we see the suffering and the closeness and the contraction and the tightness and the conflict it generates but there's also a loss of possibility it limits discovery in an incredibly powerful way and I, I had a, an experience when I was teaching or well, I was about to teach a retreat in, in Australia and what Buddha Dhamma and the uh, the Darragh National Park in New South Wales, Australia, some years ago. And I'd never been there before. And uh, having arrived the day before the retreat, I thought I'd just go out for a run to help me with processing the jet lag of having travelled a long way to get there. And I was really enjoying it. It was the sort of the, the bush in Australia was quite different to anything I knew but it also felt a bit familiar from the New Zealand bush I'd grown up in but the the terrain was really what I would call relatively gentle which meant there was nothing particularly steep or sharp or high and it was constant it was like surrounded by the denseness of the trees in the bush everywhere and I longed to get a view out and see over what was there so at one point I saw this um hill just a small hill rising up near the path thought I'll go and check it out and go up to the top and see what's there so I went up and I'm reasonably experienced and I was then even more probably with sort of wilderness and outdoors and so it was just a kind of quite a casual oh yeah I can just go up there and I did and I got up to the top and at the top of course there were still more trees oh, okay I can't see that much I'll go back down to the path and I went down to the path and I went down for a while and didn't find the path but I thought it'll be a bit, went a bit further and I thought I must have missed the path that's strange it was just right down below where I went up uh, maybe I'll just go back up and I went back up to the top and looked around I thought mm, no, no, the path is down there I went back down didn't find it it's a little bit strange what's going on kept going kept going could I really have gone that far beyond what I thought in terms of time you know and no I went up and down the side of that hill four five six times as it started to get dark and at a certain point I thought gosh you know it's getting dark it's I could hurt myself if I fell in the dark maybe I'm gonna have to spend the night out here wow okay I'm just wearing a light sort of running vest and shorts but it's Australia it's summer it's warm I'm not gonna 
you know, some creatures out there that might be scary, but it's fine. I wasn't at all worried because I knew the path was down there where I'd been looking. I just hadn't found it yet, but I was sure I knew where the path was. And then at one moment, as I was just starting to gather some leaves together to make a little place to rest for the night, it struck me like a lightning bolt through my heart, mind and body you don't know where the path is. And it came with a sense of terror, a visceral existential death fear. You're going to die out here. You got yourself completely confused. It could be completely in the wrong place or you don't know where it is. No one knows you're here. They're going to get to the opening talk on the retreat, look around and say, where is Yanai? Because nobody knows you're even out here. And I was terrified for a moment of the opening to the, I don't know where the path is. And that went through me, as I said, like a lightning bolt. I can still remember the intensity of the force that that, and it was like, wow, wow, scary. But then I contemplated, yeah, I don't know where the path is. But then I had the thought, but I do know where it's not. And it's not down there where you've been sure it was. Because you have been up and down that part of the hill so many times. And so I thought, okay, well it's not down there. How about if I go 25 degrees clockwise from there? And I'll just go up and down and then if I don't find it there, 25 degrees again. And I'll just start checking where it could be. So I just guesstimated 25 degrees. I thought, I'll just go down here. Went down there. Five minutes later, there was the path. I was a little embarrassed. I was also covered with scratches and sticky stuff from the, uh, all the trees I'd been bashing my way through for hours. I got back to the kuti. And what was really interesting was that I was trapped on that hill by my absolute unwillingness to relinquish my certainty that I knew where the path was. And the only way I could do that was to feel the fear and the loss of control that came with admitting, and I didn't choose to, it happened, I did, but acknowledging I don't know where the path is. Sometimes in practice it's like that for us. And I'm, this is a true story, it's not just a nice metaphor. Sometimes we don't know where the path is. And allowing ourselves to know that rather than just pushing and pushing and pushing at the place where we're not finding something that's working for us, that's opening, that's allowing, that's connecting. We need to say, actually, I'm not sure if it's down there. And maybe check sometimes for something else. Because what happens with the view there, of course, is that sense of getting bound into and learning to take the risk of the uncertainty, learning to feel the discomfort of it. As Voltaire said, you know, doubt is uncomfortable. But certainty is ridiculous. And sometimes what's most authentic is to say, hmm, maybe, maybe not. Let's see. So it brings us into a sense of possibility and engagement. Okay, what's needed here? And so often the question comes um, in, in interviews, you know, should I do this? Should I do that? And there are some times when it's really clear and I'll say, yeah, you should do this, you shouldn't do that. 
But mostly what I would say is, and I would imagine, you know, we say, it's like, okay, so what happens if you do this? What happens if you do that? Which of those seems more useful, given what's happening? And so in that uncertainty, it's like, check out the territory. Whether that might be to do with the question of, should I be sitting or walking or standing right now? Should I continue in this posture or change? Should I, you know, have an extra helping at lunch or not? The should doesn't apply. It's like, what happens if? If I have an extra helping of lunch and it gives me energy in the afternoon to practice, great. If I have an extra helping of lunch and I fall asleep for the next four hours, well, if I didn't sleep all night, maybe that's great. If I had a good night's sleep, maybe that's not what I want. Rather than the view, you shouldn't have too much lunch or something like that. Which is actually often something that's helpful to not eat too much. At least I find it to be so. When practicing. So this process of exploring, of looking to see, huh, what's to be learned here? Is in a way that, that quality of inquiry is lost, that curiosity is lost by the attachment to views, opinions and beliefs. And so we could, I think, wisely take to heart the ancient prayer that says, May I be free from the cowardice that shrinks from new truth, from the laziness that is content with half-truth, and from the arrogance that believes it knows all truth. And I would include in that even the idea that the Buddha's teachings are all of the, the truth that's out there. Remarkable, wonderful, beautiful, profound and comprehensive as they are. I've learned some really important things from other traditions and teachers. And I still find my heart centers and orients around the Buddha Dharma. But it's not the only source of wisdom in this world. So the fourth great attachment. Is the attachment to the sense of self. The attachment to the the construct and in a certain way it's a very particular expression of the of the third and it's one that is so significant for us the sense of who we are who I am what I have our roles our history our positions our relationships our qualities how far we are on the path I don't have time to say very much more about this at this moment it's a perennial theme but I just want to name it as the fourth great attachment and again to name it because we see the suffering that's born 
of when we get attached to a sense of self, to a view of who I am or who I am not, or how I must or must not be, as opposed to coming with the open question, well, okay, what's here? What's this? What's going on? And what's needed or what's helpful in relationship to that? So that's important to acknowledge, but at the same time to not give ourselves a hard time if we feel like I'm a failure because I'm attached to my sense of self. It's one of the great attachments. It doesn't really release until we're really deep in the profound transformative elements of this path. And so if it's something we notice arising, it's to be seen. And it's a good that we see it. And it's attachment to the sense of self that is the issue here again, rather than the often misunderstood, I would say, perception that I'm not supposed to have a sense of self. As if I should get rid of my sense of self, and then I'll be someone who doesn't have a sense of self. You see the problem, don't you? Becoming someone who doesn't have a sense of self. It's just a different sense of self. What it is is to understand what is it that that sense of self is and what is it that it is not because it does not represent or refer to something fixed, unchanging and separate from everything around it which is what it implies or what is implied by the way we hold it generally. And so that's a point of exploration for which our experience is the pathway. So all of this is to say that in simple terms our practice is learning to see where we take hold of, become attached to, bind ourselves. And in that, in seeing the unhelpfulness of that, the painfulness of that, the limitation of that, we naturally, I think, find our way to more and more capacity for letting go, for letting be. The sense of the hands that might grasp an attachment, and one form of attachment is the, the bondage of this, where you see my fingers, are, there's no freedom. Then we think, oh, detachment, boom, over here, long way away, no contact. That's not what the Buddha's teaching. Non-attachment is right here, this close, right up front, intimate with, but not attached or bound, able to move if needed. And another expression of it is, we could say, going from this to this, to receive and to offer the open hand that, in a way, symbolizes what we speak of in terms of dana, of offering and receiving. Upadana is the opposite. This. This. Well, so it seems to me. And so this practice of letting go, as Ajahn Chah said, let go a little, and you'll know a little happiness. Let go a lot, and you will know a lot of happiness. Let go completely and you will know complete happiness and natural freedom. 
This is the path and the practice. Let's sit for a moment quietly. So may we all in our practice understand deeply the power of letting go. For our own well-being, for the welfare of all beings, for the well-being of all that lives and all that is. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.